Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our 12th of BYU's Fall Semester 2022. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Darren Ray. Welcome, Darren. Thank you. Darren is Assistant Professor of African History at BYU, and we're thrilled to have him. He has also taught at the American University in Cairo, Egypt, and at Auburn University here in the States. He conducts research on the history of identity in Kenya and Zanzibar, and he teaches courses on Islam in Africa and early African history. He first became interested in African history during a BYU study abroad program to South Africa, and he tells me that he was a regular attendee at International Cinema when he was a history undergraduate major here at BYU. We're thrilled to have him. And before I give him some time to talk about uh, Timbuktu and kind of the history of the city and this film, let me just point out that we are talking about the African film Timbuktu from 2014. It's a Mauritanian French film that was directed and co-written by Abdurmani Sisako. And I think I got that somewhat close, uh, perhaps not perfect, but it is a film that is set in the city of Timbuktu in central Mali although it's shot in neighboring uh, Mauritania, as extremist Islamists bearing a jihadist black flag arrive and work to enforce a strict interpretation of Sharia law. And I love this film. So let's start, Darren, with perhaps you telling us a little bit about the title. Where is Timbuktu? What should people know to be able to understand what's going on in this film? Yes, so Timbuktu, you're probably most familiar with the phrase from here to Timbuktu. It gives us the impression that this is the back of the beyond. This is very, very far away. We get this phrase first from Leo Africanus. He was an early modern African writer who wrote a lot about Africa. He was kind of commissioned by one of the popes of the Catholic Church to write about Africa. He was the first one to brought the attention of Timbuktu to Europe, kind of in the 15th, 16th centuries. But it's actually founded in the 12th century. It's a really old city. It started off as just kind of a way station along a trade route. But Mansa Musa, who was famous as the most rich man to ever have lived on earth, kind of changed the fate of Timbuktu by endowing it as a place of learning. So after he went on a pilgrimage to, to Egypt and to Mecca, he returned and established uh, centers of learning in Timbuktu and it became a major trading area then from that point on. In the 15th century, it was conquered by some of the neighboring Tuareg peoples. Tuaregs are a branch of what you normally call the Berber peoples, but they're also known as Amazigh or Imazigh peoples. And then it was conquered by the Songhai Emperor. So the Songhai, under Songhai, was kind of the great golden age of Timbuktu. There's tens of thousands of people living in Timbuktu. There are major universities. Today, we have hundreds of thousands of Islamic and Arabic manuscripts and also these Arabic manuscripts include writing in other languages, but with the Arabic script as well. Those are preserved in dozens of family libraries in Timbuktu, as well as state institutions. And then at the end of the 16th century, around 1590, it was conquered by Morocco and then independently led by the Moroccan army, which distanced itself from Morocco for about a century after that. At that point, it kind of fell off from the major trading circuits until it became part of the French colony of French Sudan, West Sudan, and then eventually in the country of Mali today. So today, Timbuktu is primarily still a center of learning, but not quite as important politically as it used to be, and is found in kind of the northern regions of Mali. Okay, that sounds uh, fascinating. And I did watch an interview with the director who explained why the film wasn't actually shot in Timbuktu. Yes. Do you know that yeah, story? Yeah, I just saw, saw this, that they had planned to shoot it in Timbuktu, but as they were 
I don't know if they're doing casting or, or calls for, for scenery or whatever, or, or site surveys, but there was a suicide bomber who attacked the airport that's nearby Timbuktu. And so that was kind of a sign to them that this was not going to be necessarily a secure place to be filming. Okay. And so it is shot in a nearby Mali and the landscape is absolutely amazing. And this particular city in which they film is amazing as well. It does have some connections, I understand, architecturally with Timbuktu, but it is a really just an amazing. Yeah. So you see the adobe kind of style building that you see that's right. very common in Mali and that northern area, as well as in Mauritania. And I should say there's also many educational networks between Mauritania and Mali and much of the, of the Sudan. Different Sufi orders have centers in all of these places. And it's kind of tradition of scholars in West Africa to go find another scholar to get their next level of education and move to another place. So there's okay. lots of travel between Mauritania and Mali, both architecturally like it is and also scholarly networks. Okay. Great. And before we continue kind of with the sociopolitical historical background mm -hmm. that is part of this film, I just want to point out to our listeners that one of the things that really is amazing about this film is that it, it almost feels cleansed of objects and knickknacks. I mean, we're sitting in the international cinema mm -hmm. office here at BYU and we have movie posters and chairs and tables. There's just a real simplicity to the landscape and to the buildings that clearly is part of an aesthetic vision. But I hope that you like that. I, I think that it's one of the fun things about watching this film but clearly the film does connect to, to a very recent history of Islamic extremism. And I was hoping that you might be able to explain to us a little bit what that connection is. Yeah. So in the film, it's presented as some Libyan jihadists coming down, possibly with some Tuareg translators who are helping them to take control of the city and also translators in Bambara and other local languages in Mali. In fact, the actual people who conquered Timbuktu in 2012 were members of the Movement for the National Liberalization of Azawad. This was a Tuareg nationalist movement, and they wanted to declare an independent state, which they called Azawad, in northern Niger and Mali. And so they declared that in 2012. But they also partnered with an Islamist group called the Ansardine, which means the helpers of religion. This group also was mostly Tuareg. So that's kind of the main difference between the actual history and what's going on in the movie is that the Islamists were mostly Tuareg rather than from Libya. There is a Libyan connection, though. Many of the people who were involved in the Tuareg National Liberation Movement had previously had alliances with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And once Muammar Gaddafi was killed in 2011, they often raided some of his weapon stores and used it to build their kind of revolt against Mali. And their resistance against the Mali government actually led to the coup against the president of Mali in 2012, which opened space for them to actually declare this new state of Azawad. So Libya is there in a kind of a connection, but not quite as prominent in the actual history. And uh, tell me a little bit about the representation of the jihadists in this film, because I think that is one of the fun things about this film, or important things at least. And in fact, I know that, that the director did receive some pushback mm -hmm. in the ways in which he chose to show a film that has Islamic jihadists in it and it's connected very intimately to something that was happening at the time mm -hmm. right i mean this is just months before the filming of timbuktu yeah i was surprised that the main jihadists had almost nothing to do with the tuareg and that we only actually have one tuareg family who's kind of represented and the impression is that all the other tuaregs have left because they've been driven out by the arabs so that creates this real tension between the tuaregs as these are the real local people and the Arabs who are these foreign invaders coming in, presenting some sort of alien ideology. 
when in fact there was support among Tuareg for that ideology. Certainly many Tuareg, probably most, certainly most Tuareg are against that sort of ideology of the Islamic extremism and this very strict Sharia law you see imposed in the movie. But it is kind of an interesting, I think, story element to focus on that as a major tension between alien Arab invaders and these Tuareg. But there's one moment of the film where this kind of breaks down. And that's the moment when Kidan is being questioned after a certain event. He's questioned by police and he notices the translator. He's like, I think I know you. Are you this person? And the translator you should know is wrapped in a turban so that his face is not seen except for his eyes. And he says, no, no, I'm not that person. How did you get involved with these people? Oh, we go way back. I'm coming from Libya. I don't have any relationship to you. And so I, I think there's that kind of hint that maybe there is something more about this relationship between the Tuareg and this other group that is just hinted at in the film. Okay. And the film is not particularly a happy film. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in many ways a very realistic look at the arrival of these jihadist extremists into Timbuktu. I, I think this is a film that's appropriate for multiple ages. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very watchable film, but it does show scenes in which people are punished, including being stoned to death, although that is kind of cut out so you don't really see it. You see it almost in a lyrical way. But in other words, there's a representation of the ugliness of the arrival of these jihadists. And yet at the same time, Sisiko, the director, mentions that he did not want to dehumanize these individuals. He wanted to show them as individuals with their own foibles, sometimes their own struggles with their own Sharia law. And I think that some of the criticism that was leveled at the film was that it didn't paint a clearly good versus evil representation of the jihadists that are shown in this film. And so I was wondering what you kind of felt about that, since you know so much more about the context of this film that how that might play out. Yeah, so most of the amusing moments in the film to me are those that highlight the contradictions that the jihadists are altering. The biggest example of this is just soccer. Soccer is a huge deal in Africa. Everyone plays soccer. Ansardin at one point did ban soccer in the city of Gao. They banned Western music. I'm not clear if they actually banned it in Timbuktu as well, but they're building on those same sort of ideas. And routinely, we have these jihadis longing for soccer, wanting to talk about soccer, looking at, at soccer games. And I'd say the most beautiful moment of the film is a, a particular soccer game, and I won't give away what's going on there. But it really shows how even in the face of this kind of persecution, they're finding ways and finding moments to enjoy their lives, to have some sort of normalcy in their lives. So we see them playing music, even though it's banned. We see them playing soccer in a fashion, even though it's banned. And I really love the small moments, both among Kadan and his family sitting at the tent, just talking about cows or whatever else that they think is interesting for their family, but also the various moments with the jihadis. I love the interactions between Abdul Karim and his driver and translator. And they poke fun at each other all the time for their language inadequacies. And Umar is the driver talks to Abdul Karim and, and criticizes him all the time. And, and he just kind of has to take it. And they, they have these, these really kind of poignant moments of normalcy. I'd say that they're kind of friends, kind of antagonists to each other, but they're just getting through their days. Yeah, that's great. And I might mention that, you know, the director is not sympathetic towards the jihadists at all. Yeah. He, he does seem to be a devout Muslim, if I can speak for him. But he does feel like, you know, that Islam as a religion has been misrepresented frequently, especially after 9-11. 
and that it, it has been perhaps taken hostage yeah. by some violent elements of the religion. But he does believe, and this is something that I agree with him on, that we need to see even perhaps the people that we most want to vilify as humans. And I think one of the fun things about this film is that it is not happy. It's not a happy film. It's very lyrical. There are beautiful moments in it. The soccer mm -hmm. scene, that you, scene that you say, I thought it's one of the most joyous mm -hmm. scenes. I've seen it international cinema this semester. Yeah. And yet that's kind of ironic because it's, it's joyful. About, it's tragic. Yeah. But it's also tragic. And there's a lot of those kinds of ironies in it. But I really like the fact that we see these jihadists perhaps in moments as individuals. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this film. You know, how do we redeem even those people that we might believe to not be redeemable? So it's not a happy film, but it is a film that seeks for the betterment. It's not nihilistic, uh, certainly. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things I most enjoyed about this film. We might be able to get back to this idea of lyrical. I've used that word, I yeah. think, twice already. And it is a very lyrical film. I teach an Islam in Africa course, and one of the things we're covering right now is Boko Haram, which is a similar right. Islamist group in Nigeria. And one of the things we've tried to explore and emphasize in the class is that many people are drawn into these movements who aren't necessarily true believers in the movements. For lots of different reasons, they feel compelled to support Boko Haram or, or Ansardine or any of these. And a great example of this, if you want to look for one of the film, is a former rapper who's wearing a yellow turban. Uh -huh. So look for the, the yellow orangish turban. And he has one major scene, but he also shows up in lots of other places that kind of give you a sense of his hesitancy towards being part of this movement. And there's also a fun scene in which they're trying to tape one of these traditional yeah. propagandistic style films and the person who is speaking yeah this is him this isn't is speaking rapper. with yeah. yeah isn't speaking with the conviction that they would be the demand that they want yeah <laughs> and i think you know that's one of those moments of dissonance within the film that become just beautiful in the way that it forces us to see the difference between good and evil and the representation of both good and evil in somebody that's perhaps associated with something that we would all universally condemn and and just if i could i think sasako the director really emphasizes the absurdity of some of this logic. And one of my favorite lines of the whole film is periodically there will be scenes where the jihadists are, are making pronouncements in the street about what you can or cannot do. Uh -huh. You cannot commit adultery. You cannot play football. You cannot play soccer. Uh -huh. Women must wear gloves and socks in the market. And then he says in French, you cannot be sitting outside in your street. You cannot do any old thing in the street. So it just accentuates the absurdity of it's just taking yeah. it to everywhere, wherever they can yeah. make yeah. this point. That's great. And I hope, you know, our listeners, when, you know, you hear me pronouncing the director's name and you hear Darren do it, <laughs> take Darren's version. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and somewhere between English and Spanish, I'm trying to find the correct pronunciation. But thank you, Darren, for, uh, for the pronunciation you're giving us. One thing that I want to point out is that this film we actually included in, in a sequence, in a series of films that are related to faith and believing. And I think that one of the important things about this film is that it is not, even though there are extremist elements practicing a faith that obviously becomes autocratic, this is a film, I believe, that supports and encourages and uplifts faith that is a lived in real life, or in a real way, perhaps I should say, and not all of the Muslim who are represented in this film are part of this organization. Yeah. Perhaps you can talk about the positive representations of Islam in the film 
and also talk about just the multi-ethnic, multilingual yeah. element of this film because it's fun. You even have, I believe, the woman who dresses with the most colors. I think she's supposed to be from Haiti. Oh, isn't yeah. she? I, I, don't, I, I think, think she's speaking Haitian Haitian. Creole. Okay. I don't know, as you listen... I, I thought she's watching. speaking French, but I wasn't uh, catching yeah, that. I, I kind of had a sense that she might have been coming from Haiti. But anyway, speak to that representation of this diverse yeah, so there's collection. at least three scenes, there may be four, where there is a cleric dressed in white. And this cleric is meant to, I think, represent the scholarly community of Timbuktu, the centuries-old scholarly community of Timbuktu. And so the first time you're introduced to him, he's sitting in his mosque and the jihadis come in with guns and shoes and they walk up to him and say, and he asks, what are you doing here? It's like, we're here to make an announcement. You come here dressed like this with your shoes and your guns. It's okay. We're jihadis. I don't know anything about that, but you're not supposed to be in here dressed like that. Take your jihad and leave. And they leave. At other points in the film, he's the person that people come to when they have problems with the jihadis. And in very respectful tones, he sits down with them across from them and explains why they're wrong over and over again. And he quotes hadith or stories of the Prophet Muhammad to justify his positions. And my favorite one of these is where he says, you've given an edict that people are supposed to obey this edict. But the Prophet Muhammad says, you need to explain people why they should do something. and then leave it to God for them to do instead of forcing them to do something you want them to do. So there's a very different approach to how do you live that faith of Islam? You put your trust in God and you don't have compulsion. That's another famous saying in Islam that there is no compulsion in religion. And so that's one of the main ways that the positive aspects of Islam are reinforced in film to again, show the absurdity of kind of the jihadist positions in some cases. Also, in all of these scenes with this cleric, there's a translator. And it's not just translation between these alien Arabs coming in and the local population, but there's translators between members of the local population. The main languages here are Tamashek, Bambara, and Arabic. Bambara is the common language spoken in Mali, but it's actually not spoken very much in Timbuktu. I had to look this up. In Timbuktu, the most common language spoken in Timbuktu is actually Koirachini, which is a Songhai dialect. Songhai being that old empire that used to control much of this area in the 16th century. And so it's like 80% of the people in Timbuktu speak Koirachini. But about 10% speak Tamashek, which is the local Tuareg language. And then another 10% speak Arabic, because that's a language of scholarship in the area as well. And it's a dialect of Arabic called Hassaniya Arabic, which is very widespread in all of West Africa. Even in Timbuktu, in Mali area already, there's multilingualism happening. People are used to having to translate. And in fact, there is one scene with English as well. I'd invite readers to think, how did that happen? How is it that there's an English speaker showing up in this scene? And I think there's actually three translators involved in that particular conversation to emphasize kind of the complexity of understanding both religion and different approaches to religion as well as language. Great. I love that explanation. And one of the populations that is shown that suffers particularly in this is the female population. I was hoping that you might kind of talk about some of the ways in which women appear in this film and perhaps face special challenges with this new extremist presence. Right. So in many cases, women are also breadwinners in West Africa. So you have a whole phenomenon of market women. These are people who are the go-betweens between fishermen on the rivers and the lakes and what people actually eat for dinner. And women are the most common go-betweens for this. And so when the jihadis come in and say women should not have a public presence, they can't really take it that far 
but they do insist that they cover themselves with a veil or they wear gloves and they wear socks and they cover every inch of skin. And if they see a woman who hasn't pulled hijab across her face in the street, they stop her. And so there's these constant reminders that women are not supposed to be in public, at least from the jihadi perspective. But from the local perspective, I love the scene where one of the jihadis comes and approaches Gadan's wife, Satana. And he's like, you need to cover your hair. And she's literally outside her tent washing her hair when he shows up. And she says, you don't need to look at it if you don't want to see it. You came to me. You were not invited here. And so there's this nice, strong disconnect between, you know, what the jihadis expect and, and what they're willing to force women to do and women saying, actually, there's only so far it can go. This is one of the reasons that many of the women stand up and say, no, I'm not going to accept this. But they see consequences for that. Darren, you're giving us a great uh, overview uh, for the film, and there's so much to really enjoy in this film. But it's also for those who may want to see the film as film, right? Film as art. This is a film that you're going to like. Yeah. I mean, the cinematography is amazing. The editing is, is just outstanding. And I'm just maybe hoping that you might be able to identify maybe one or two of the scenes that you like the most, maybe from a film perspective or maybe from something else. I'm a fan of the long shot. There's one scene, and it's the climax, really, of the film, where the camera will just takes a wide angle at a single lake, and you can hardly see anyone. But there's two figures who have some movement, and you need to pay attention. And I, I think that's one of the most beautiful and complicated shots of the, of the whole film that viewers should watch out for. Yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes of the film as well. And in fact, you know, so I teach an international cinema studies seminar class on Wednesdays and students watch the films in international cinema. We talk about it and I'll be showing that clip. Yeah. And one of the things that I really liked about it, I mean, from a cinematography perspective, it's beautiful. The landscape is amazing. But just like you say, it's such an extreme long shot that the two individuals, but they're placed at opposite ends of the screen, yeah. which I think, uh, you know, beyond the aesthetics becomes kind of a metaphoric representation of this division right? Yeah. You know, if translation hopefully tries, struggles to bring people together, this is a scene where people have moved apart. And I think that we see that visually. It is an amazing scene. Look for it. And, and I'll say, look carefully, because I watched it twice and I didn't notice the second figure the first time. So yeah. there are two figures. So look for the two figures. And I'll also note that the separation does not involve the jihadis. It's kind of the consequence of the jihadist activity in that area. Right. But it's some right. other tensions that are happening. And think about movement as well, because the figures are so small, it looks like it's a static image. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. And the characters are moving. And if you watch them, and, and I love the fact that you have to kind of look left and right and right and left and kind of look back and forth. They're not set on the center of the screen. It makes yeah. us easy. We kind of have to choose where we look and see the division. So fun scene. I'll have to point out one other that I really like. And it goes back to this woman who's a kind of a colorful yeah. character including in the fact that she dresses more colorfully than most of the others. There's a top shot. In other words, the camera is right above her. She's walking down this narrow roadway as a couple of uh, trucks mm -hmm. of jihadists yeah. approach. And uh, we see her standing in the way with her arms outstretched, which automatically presents her kind of as a messianic figure. But I don't know this for sure, but I immediately went to that iconic image from Tiananmen Square mm -hmm. 
of the Chinese civilian who stood in front of column of tanks yeah. in a white shirt and put his arms outstretched and stopped the advancement of this corrupt authoritarian movement. And I thought that that was so metaphorically and aesthetically pleasing, that shot, that there's a lot to really like in this film from a film perspective. I have confused thinking about what she represents as a, as a character. So she she's one of these motifs that shows up at moments, sometimes as an observer, sometimes as this active participant of, of resistance, but never, ever, ever with a hijab all the way on her hair. Right? So she is obviously, she's, she's wearing it, it's trailing behind her in the dirt. She's certainly not kind of conforming to what they want. And I think some of them actually hang out with her anyway. And I, I'm still not sure who those people are that are hanging out with her at some of those scenes. In this film that doesn't allow dancing, there is a modern dance sequence that's associated her well, with yeah. her and what seems to be a jihadist. Seems to be a jihadist who's doing yeah. the dance. I, I, yeah. I wasn't exactly clear and, on that, but I think and, it is. And notice the editing, because this is what I was talking about earlier, that you get some difficult moments, including you know a public stoning, but we don't see much of the actual stoning. And all of a sudden we get some editing Mm -hmm. that yeah. connects almost in dissonance, you know, this particular scene with that other one. And I think that there's some beauty there. I, I have noticed as I looked at some reviews that lyrical, lyricism mm -hmm. is a word that is used over and over again. And this is a film that is lyrical. There is extra diegetic music that really plays on the emotions that creates a feel. And it is a film that I don't think you need to know anything about Correct. the yeah. history of what happened in Timbuktu to really appreciate not only the moral message, but also the aesthetic one. Yeah. And one thing I appreciated going back to scenes I enjoyed were just all the scenes of domesticity in the tent, in apartments, of just people hanging out and being human with each other, being family, being friends, even in these difficult circumstances. Yeah. And I think that really serves well to de-exoticize Africa, which is always a challenge in representing African and African peoples in film. Uh, certainly it helps that it's an African director and he's attuned to just yeah. capturing the normal moments instead and, of making everything extravagant. And this one family, and we won't tell you the ending. Remember, it's not yeah. a happy film necessarily, but there is a father, mother, and daughter, right? And that was one of the most beautiful family relations that I've seen this semester in a number of films that have really amazing families. But this family is just, just really captures your attention, you really feel for them yeah. in their situation. So the idea is go see this film. But before we let Darren go, I did want to ask him just a couple of additional questions that might be interesting. And since you mentioned that mm. you used to come to international cinema as an undergraduate, I'm just wondering if there is a particular film that really piqued your interest when you were here as a student? Yeah, so I, I watched several films in ICG, but only one sticks in my head, and it's partly because of the title, but also the impression it made. It's A Time for Drunken Horses. Uh, Time for Drunken Horses was a Kurdish film, and it told the story, I think, of a brother who's trying to find medication for his brother with childhood diabetes, trying to find some medication. And to do this, they're going to have to go over the mountain. And to get horses to go over the mountain, you have to make them drunk first. I mean, it's all built around the title makes sense once you actually get into the story, but it also is one of these evocative endings that you don't know what happens. They just, tragedy happens and then they just go over the mountain. You don't know if they ever get the medicine or not. It just really left me with an unsettled feeling, but it was also a very beautiful film. 
Well, thank you for having attended International Cinema as a student, yeah. and we hope people will come. And I have one final question, yeah. and that is, if you have any other film recommendations from the last few years, something you've seen that you really would like to recommend to our yeah. listeners. You should see Dune. If you haven't seen Dune, it's got a lot of amazing cinematography, obviously a great story, and I hear there'll be a sequel, so maybe they'll actually finish <laughs> the story. I did see Dune, yeah. Great, great. Thank you very much. And we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We thank Darren and all of those who join us on From the Booth. I'll remind you that this podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer, Anna Guevara, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next week, keep seeing great international movies.